When I was little, sometimes our family would build puzzles together. We'd sit down and we would separate out the inside pieces from the edges. We'd find all the corners and eventually we'd put all the pieces together. But inevitably, it would happen that we'd be missing a piece or missing two pieces. And we'd look on the ground, maybe it had fallen off the table. Um, we'd look kind of around the house and eventually we kind of shrug our shoulders. Uh, and then my little brother, Andrew, would get a big smirk across his face and he'd reach into his little pocket and he'd pull out the last piece uh, and place it there himself. He'd do all of this for the sole satisfaction of knowing that he was the one that finished the puzzle. He wanted to be that guy. And you see, we, we all want to feel like we're important, like success depends on our own will, on our own efforts. But today we're going to see the truth underneath our efforts, underneath our successes, and underneath our failures. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please turn with me to Psalm 127. If you don't know me, my name's Carson. I'm a member here. I work for the church. If you open up to the very middle of your Bible, that's probably about where it is. Last summer, we spent about seven weeks looking at some of the Psalms of Ascents, uh, and today we're looking at the eighth Psalm of Ascents. And I, I know you probably haven't forgotten anything from that sermon series, but let me just refresh your memory a little bit about what a Psalm of Ascent is. These songs are pilgrim songs. Um, they're songs that people of Israel would sing as they made their way about three times a year up to the city of Jerusalem. Uh, literally, they're the songs of going up. Um, perhaps it gave them something to do to pass the time, maybe like a mixtape of songs for a road trip. Um, but what it definitely did was help them to focus their hearts and their minds on where they were going. They were going to the place where God dwelled, to the place where the temple was. It helped them remember why they were going. Well, before we read, let me point out one more thing to you. You'll see above the numbers, uh, 127 there, there's a title. It says, maybe in your Bible it says, unless the Lord builds the house. Maybe it says the blessings of the Lord or something like that. Uh, that phrase was added in by the editors of your Bible. But those next words, the ones in all capital letters, those ones were not added by the editors. Those were in the manuscripts. Uh, you won't find them in every psalm. If you flip the pages, you'll see some that don't have that. But if they're there, remember that they're part of God's word. Um, here they tell us that this is a song of ascents, and it's also a song of Solomon. It was written by Solomon. But let's go ahead and read it. Um, follow along with me as I read it now. A song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. All right, let's pray before we get started. Father, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight for your glory. Um, Lord, help me to preach with authority as one who's preaching your very words. 
And Lord, help me to preach with humility as one preaching before you. Uh, Lord, help us to hear you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Christians, we're on a journey. We're on a journey not to Jerusalem, but to the new Jerusalem, to heaven. Michael mentioned that earlier today. Uh, And God means to use this psalm, Psalm 127, to help us get there safely together. And the main message that God is trying to communicate to us here today is that our efforts are empty without the Lord. Our efforts are empty without the Lord. On our journey to heaven, followers of Jesus need to constantly remind themselves that this world is not their home. And often the commands of God's word run countercultural to what the world says, what the culture tells us. And this psalm is going to give us two very countercultural ideas to think about. One, human efforts are empty. Human efforts are empty. And two, children are a gift. Human efforts are empty. We see that in the first two verses. Now, verse one begins with the words, unless, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Uh, It's a conditional word, and because it's conditional, it remains hypothetical. Um, Parents and children are pretty familiar with words like this. Um, How many of you have ever heard your mom say, you can't go play outside unless you clean your room? Or maybe as they're leaving, they'll say something like, don't call me unless there's an emergency. Um, The author is using the same device here. He's linking these statements together in an absolute way, and he's saying that our labor will always be in vain unless the Lord builds the house. Or said another way, there's no possible way that you could build a house unless the Lord builds it. Well, what goes into building a house? I know we have some architects in our church that probably have a good idea, but is building, an house, is building a house an easy thing, or does it require hard labor? Is it a simple thing, or does it require careful planning? Is it a quick thing, or does it require time to build a house? You can ask the Abrahams about the house next door to theirs. Building a house is a lot of things, but it's not quick or quiet. At the same time, building a house is possible. We all live in a house of some kind, maybe in an apartment or just somewhere with a roof over our heads. So what is God saying here? Well, Solomon here is not saying that it's literally impossible to build a physical house. He's saying that without God, we can have no guarantee of success. If God chooses to establish a house, it's sure to succeed. But if God chooses to tear one down, it is sure to fail. You can think about the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. Um, The people then, they wanted to build a tower to reach to the heavens. They wanted to make a name for themselves. But God didn't stand for this and he confused their language so that the tower wouldn't be finished. They thought that they could build a house apart from God, and what happened in the end? Their labor was in vain. Well, here in Psalm 127, to build a house probably has multiple meanings. It means literally to build a material structure, but building a house can also mean building a family. Maybe in your Bible reading plan, um, you've heard those words before. Me and My wife, Kanoa, we're reading through the book of Joshua, uh, and it often talks about the house of Jacob or the house of Israel or the house of Joseph. Those aren't literal houses made of wood and bricks. Those are families, family lines. 
And the story of Abraham can illustrate this well for us. God promises to give Abraham a son, to give him descendants as numerous as the stars in heaven. But as Abraham gets older and older, he thinks he needs to take things into his own hands. He doesn't wait on the Lord to build his house. He conspires to have a son with Hagar, and in the end, his efforts are empty, right? It's not the son that God had promised. He still has to wait, and in the end, his scheme only leads to more hurt for him and his family, more strife. Okay, back to Psalm 127. I bet one of the first things you noticed as you read was the parallel nature in that first verse. Both verses, or both lines start with, unless the Lord, and they both end with, in vain. The author's reiterating the leading truth of the psalm, saying that unless the Lord watches or keeps over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Well, in ancient times, cities required watchmen uh, to watch out for intruders, to guard the city walls, to sound the alarm if they saw someone. Today, our cities don't usually have walls, but we do have security guards in our apartment buildings or in our offices. Um, We have police officers that um, help to protect our cities from violence and crime. And what makes them good at their jobs? What makes a watchman a good watchman or a police officer a good police officer? Well, one thing is that they need to stay awake while they're on their job. And the author is saying here that without the Lord watching, that doesn't even matter. The Lord must keep a place safe if it is truly to be safe. Do you see the common theme of this first verse? Our efforts are in vain without the Lord on our side. All human plans fail without him. We're not inherently sufficient uh, to do anything. One commentator says, without God, the bravest become cowards, the strongest are weak as water, the most careful fail, and the wise are fools. Church, that's true for you, and it's true for everyone, no matter where they are, no matter what their faith background is. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Success and security are not ultimately your accomplishments. They're God's gifts. So let me ask you, what are you building? And how are you building it? Those who trust God Uh, trust him to do what only he can do. So think, are there things in your life that you're tempted to do without any thought towards God at all? And what does that say about who you're trusting in and, and where your hope lies? I don't know what's going on in your life right now. Maybe you have a big project at work. Maybe there's something that you need to do with a family member, do for a family member. Um, Maybe you're new to Dubai, maybe you're moving somewhere else, but if you set out to do something, your striving is losing unless God makes it happen. I felt that way about the sermon this week. Um, I don't preach very often, but I'm around a lot of people who do, uh, and as I got back into town, I kind of knew exactly what I needed to do to prepare the sermon. Um, I prayed, I studied the text. I did a worksheet to help me find the main idea and the structure. Um, I thought about illustrations and applications. Um, And when I sat down to actually write it, it was super hard. Um, I just kind of realized it just felt like all my work was in vain. Um, 
And then it occurred to me, I can do, I can do all this work, but it's the Lord who must write the sermon. Um, I can stand up here and speak, but it must be the Lord who accomplishes his work with the, with the preaching, with the speaking. God will use his word to accomplish what he purposes. Uh, and that's true in whatever you do. It's even true in spiritual things. In your spiritual goals, you need to continue to rely on God to get there. So for those of us who are Christians, the ends, you know, good end goals don't justify your means of getting there. You need to do the Lord's work and also do it in the Lord's way. So if you want to grow in your faith, there's so many things that you could do, but go to the Lord first. Um, Ask him. Unless he grows you, your efforts are in vain. Or maybe you have a desire to share the gospel more frequently. What a great desire that is. Um, You could go spend more time at a shop or at the gym to get to know people there uh, with the hopes of sharing the gospel. You could learn an illustration to benefit you in your evangelism. Um, But begin by asking the Lord and continue to rely on him because unless he gives the fruit, your efforts are in vain. That's what the next verse is talking about, verse 2. When we rely on ourselves to build the house apart from the Lord, we rise up early and go late to rest in vain. Did you notice that's the third time this word vain is used? Vanity, vanity, vanity. That sure sounds like Solomon, doesn't it? Solomon, the one who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. Here he's saying that all of this hard work is vanity without God. And where does it lead? Eating the bread of anxious toil. That bread doesn't taste very good. Solomon's saying that the reward of our hard work is only anxiety if we do it apart from God. That doesn't mean we shouldn't work. It means that we need to understand that there's things that are beyond our control. We need to be clear of what is our responsibility and what is God's. You see, there's, there's two enormous truths that we see throughout the Bible. You have God's sovereignty and you have man's responsibility. God is sovereign. He's all-powerful. Everything works according to his will. And we see that here in Psalm 127. He must build the house. He must watch the city. And at the same time, we are responsible for our own actions. We're not robots that God is controlling. We work, we labor. And the fact that God is at work doesn't mean that we shouldn't. We must. Our actions have consequences. And and yet, and yet, there is so much beyond our control. And when we're anxious about things we can't control, it's like biting your nails as you wait for a test result. Or it's like nervously eating popcorn while you watch uh, for the resolution in a movie. Um, You're not going to change anything. Earlier we read um, from Matthew 6, and it sums up the point here so well, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious about your life. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. Instead, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. He'll give you what you need. Do what is your responsibility and trust God with the outcome. In him our labor is not in vain. And what's so countercultural about these ideas is that the world, the world says do better. The world says work harder. The world says you get what you pay for. If you work hard enough, you'll see the results. You'll get what you want. We'll reach the top. But God is saying our striving is useless without him. And that's what that last part of verse 2 is saying. 
You'll be anxious all you want, but God gives sleep to those that he loves. Do you ever think about how crazy it is that humans require sleep? Think about all the things that you could do if you didn't need to sleep. You could watch a whole season of Netflix pretty quickly. You could work two jobs. You could give away a whole paycheck to your church and still live off the other. Lots of things you could do. But it doesn't matter if you're six months old or 60 years old. God designed you to require sleep. But why? Why does the God who neither slumbers nor sleeps require all of us to sleep? At least one reason is to remind us that we are not God. Listen to John Piper reflect on this. He says, Once a day, God sends us to bed like patients with a sickness. And that sickness is a chronic tendency to think we are in control and that our work is indispensable. To cure us of this disease, God turns us into helpless sacks of sand once a day. How humiliating to the self-made corporate executive that he has to give up all control and become as limp as a little infant every day. God is not nearly so impressed with our late nights and early mornings as he is with a peaceful trust that casts all anxieties on him and sleeps. So let me ask you, what does your, see, what does your sleep say about your trust in God? Jobs can be pretty demanding, especially here in Dubai. You know, there's times we'll have to work late nights occasionally, put in extra hours, but what does your sleep, what does your sleep say about your trust in God? Will the world keep spinning if you close your eyes for seven or eight hours? Are you able to trust God with your life, with your job, with your finances? And I'm not saying that more sleep necessarily means more trust. You know, maybe you're someone who needs to repent of too much sleep uh, because you're avoiding responsibilities or you're sleeping time away. But think about it. How do, what does your sleep say about your trust in God? He gives to his beloved sleep. So if you're tired, seek him. Give up control to him. You can think about Jesus in the stormy sea on a boat in Mark 2. Um, the, the waves are crashing into the boat. The boat is filling up with water. And the disciples are running around frantically. And where's Jesus? He's asleep in the stern of the boat. He knew that the storm could be called by, calmed by his words. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, or maybe you're not sure you're a Christian, have you ever given up control of your life to God? Maybe you've been running from God. Or maybe you've just been apathetic towards spiritual things. But from your own life, I'm sure that you've experienced that your work is often in vain. Not only is the outcome of your work sometimes failure, it often feels like the work itself is broken, that something's not right. You can work hard, um, but not always like you want to. Maybe you feel like you're just not good enough. Jesus is asking you to give up control. Because the truth is, you can't be good enough. You'll never be good enough. The sin that you've done deserves God's punishment. But Jesus says, come to me and I will give you what? Rest. Lay down your life and say, Jesus, I can't do it on my own. My efforts are empty. I need rest. Unless you build the house, 
I build it in vain. Well, as we turn the corner from verse 2 into these last three verses, Solomon's going to make the point that children are a gift. Children are a gift. And you may be wondering what the connection is. It seems like a pretty abrupt change from talking about work and cities and sleep to talking about children. And maybe you even sense a little irony there. Uh, If you have babies at home or if you've been around babies lately, uh, sleep is the last thing that you would connect with children being a blessing. Babies are not really good sleep enablers. They're sleep stealers. Uh, Yet God calls them a blessing. Isn't that crazy? If you're a Christian, it doesn't matter matter whether you wake up in the middle of of the night or if you sleep all the way through the night, he's saying that sleep and children are both blessings. He says, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. A heritage is like an allotted portion, something passed down from generation to generation. In other words, he's saying children are a gift. They're not something you can buy at a store. You must give, or God must give a family fertility if they're going to have a baby. But does the world believe this? The world often thinks the opposite about kids uh, that God says. And we can fall into thinking like the world as well. We may think children are are just a nuisance, that they tie you down, they keep you from doing the things you really want to do. We may focus on the expense of children, the cost of time, of energy, of finances. Maybe in the culture you're from, uh, babies are aborted for those reasons. Um, But maybe in the culture you're from, people encourage you to have children, but children become more of a duty than a joy. Solomon here is saying that children are a blessing, a heritage, and a reward from God. Do you believe that? Do you believe that children are a gift? Or do you see them as a liability rather than a source of hope? How is your heart today as you think about your own kids or if you think about kids in general? Will you trust God in his word on this matter even if all you can see is the downsides? Solomon goes on to give some reasons why children are a gift. He says they're like arrows in the hand of a warrior, uh, the children of one's youth, and that a man is blessed if he fills his quiver with them. A quiver is just an arrow holder. So children are a blessing because they are like arrows. And what does that mean? Well, arrows are a weapon. They're used in offense to defeat enemies. But different than a sword, there's something that you can have more than just one or two of. You can have a quiver full. And different than a sword, they're used at a distance. Arrows can fly to places you'll never reach. And the same is true with children. Children, um, by raising them in the way of the Lord, you can leave a witness for God in places that you'll never go to yourself, um, even the future. In the last line, uh, the author Solomon mentions children speaking to enemies at the gate. The gate in those days was the place where many legal and social matters were settled. Um, You can think about the book of Ruth, where Boaz became Ruth's redeemer at the city gate. He did that thing with the shoe. Um, And the idea here is that children will speak up for justice, even when you can't. But back to the quiver thing. Some of you may be thinking about what exactly that means to fill your quiver with children, to fill your quiver with arrows. Is it wrong if you're married and have an empty quiver? 
And does that mean that you're more blessed if you have more children? Well, let me address the, the overfilled quiver first. If children are a gift from God, then if it follows that many children are better than fewer children. But when God gives a family a child, he's entrusting a soul to them, a soul for them to care for. He's giving them a heart to be led in his ways. And I think it's possible for a family to overfill their quiver with arrows. And an arrow on the ground is useless against God's enemies. Um, A quiver can be small and yet full. But that's a question to be answered between you and your spouse and God. And it's worth worth asking the question. Is God asking you today to consider more arrows in your quiver? I'm asking myself as I ask you guys. Maybe he's asking you to trust him. Is God asking you today to sharpen the arrows already in your quiver? If you're a parent, is he asking you to be more intentional, to shape and to use them for God's purposes? The famous missionary, Jim Elliott, wrote this in a letter to his parents um, as he was leaving to go to a faraway land. He says, remember how the psalmist describes children? He said that they were as a heritage from the Lord and that every man should be happy who has had a quiver full of them. And what is a quiver full of but arrows? And what are arrows but to shoot? So with the strong arms of prayer, draw the bowstring back and let the arrows fly, all of them, straight at the enemy's hosts. What an amazing opportunity that parents have to let arrows do what they do, to fly, to fly for God's purposes. But remember, just like the house in the first verse, um, that a thriving um, child, a child who has faith, is not your doing in the end. It's God's doing. Being a helicopter parent and kind of hovering, really involving yourself, over-involving yourself in your child's life won't guarantee their success. It can't guarantee their faith. Unless the Lord enters their life, your work is in vain. So work hard, but entrust your child, your arrow to the Lord. And we can be sure that a person's life is not found in the abundance of children that he or she has. Whether you have one child or two or 20, God has given you those children because he loves you. And you can think about people in the Bible. Um, Abraham had two sons. Jacob had 12. Jesus had none. So for those of you here today with empty quivers, Let me remind you again that children are a gift from the Lord, but they're not his only gift. Maybe you're a single person and it's it's hard to meditate on these verses because you don't think they apply to you, or maybe uh, it's hard because you long to be married and to have kids. But don't forget that your singleness is also a gift, so use it for God's glory. As we think about children, um, you can have a great impact on the children of other people in our church. I know people in our church would love for members to take an interest in their kids and to help them to grow into the people that God's calling them to be, to help them um, grow in their faith, to learn about Jesus. Kids need more than just the example of their parents. You know, a parent could say something a thousand times, but maybe it won't actually take root until someone else says the exact same thing. Um, Kids need things like that. Single people, keep looking to God in your good desires for marriage, and children, unless he builds the family, your labor is in vain. So trust God's plan for you. 
If you're here today and you're young in your marriage and have an empty quiver, uh, maybe you're wondering, you know, when's the right time to start or something like that. Let this text be a challenge to you. Um, In verse 4 it says, the children of one's youth, blessed is that man. Um, So it doesn't say say an age exactly, but um, in your youth. Sounds like younger rather than older. Um, And they're a good thing. Let that be a challenge to you. And if you're married and still long to have kids, what's the answer? Maybe you're here today and you've been trying for a while to fill your quiver. And maybe it it just hurts to be reminded again that God has not given you the blessing of children. He's not given you the gift of a child or a second child. But God has not forgotten you. God sees your struggle. Earlier we read in uh, Psalm 139, And at the beginning of that psalm, the first part of it, it says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. Then it says, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. God sees and God knows. He knows your struggle. So pray to him. Lament to him if you need to. Ask God to build the house and trust him with the fruit of the womb. Perhaps God is asking you to consider adoption. Maybe that's something you've thought about or never thought about. Uh, But it'd be worth sticking around today after the service to hear from Lifeline Children's Services about what that could look like. And if you're single, not thinking about adoption, you can stick around and learn how you can help other families um, with their adopted kids. Um, Our church has a number of of kids that are adopted. Children are a gift. As we think about this, I thought of James 1.17, says that every good and perfect gift come down from the Father of lights. He knows what gift we need, and he knows when we need it. So if you then know how to give good gifts to others, how much more does God in heaven know how to give good gifts to you? Trust him. As we wrap up, uh, we can find even more hope as we trace through this psalm in the whole Bible. Um, In the beginning, God created man in his image. And bear with me, this won't take too long. Uh, But in Genesis 3, 17, after the curse, after man sins against God, he says the curse um, is upon them and that work would be difficult. He says, the ground is cursed because of your sin and in pain, You shall eat of it all the days of your life. Well, it sounds to me like eating the bread of anxious toil. But God also promised in Genesis 3.15 that one day God would use one of man's descendants um, to crush the head of evil forever, to crush the head of the serpent. And as time went on, the hearts of man proved evil continually over and over again. But God's promise of victory over evil still stood. The author of this psalm, Solomon, was the son of David, and in 2 Samuel 7, God promises David, he says this, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So two halves of the promise to David here. One is a temple a house of worship, a place for God to dwell. 
built by his descendant, and two is a line of offspring, a dynasty, sons, culminating in a future king who would represent God forever. Can you see those two things in Psalm 127? A house and descendants? Solomon builds a house of worship for God eventually, but it doesn't last. It's destroyed by invaders. But there's hope still in verse 3. Children, sons, and lasting inheritance that will establish God's kingdom forever. On the first page of our New Testaments in Matthew 1, the Holy Spirit has left a long list of sons from Adam all the way to David and through many other names all the way to Jesus. Jesus, the long-awaited son of David who would crush the head of evil forever and establish God's kingdom. How do we know Jesus is the one true son? Well, he said he is, but he lived a perfect and sinless life. He perfectly trusted the Lord to build the house, even though that meant him going to the cross in our place. That painful death on the cross where Jesus died, he paid the price that our sins deserved, and he took the punishment and paid it in full. He rose again on the third day so that all who believe in him would be adopted into God's family. So what now? We need to respond. Hope in Jesus, glory in his name. He gives us new life, and now we are his heritage. We are weapons in his hand against the enemy's devices. He uses us to share his message of salvation to our own sons and daughters and to the ends of the earth. In Christ, those without a biological family have have hope of a truer family, one of spirit rather than flesh and blood. So church, our, our efforts are empty without the Lord, but trust in him today. Let's pray. Father, our, our works are vanity without you. We need you in all that we do. Lord, help us to trust you to not build our houses in vain. Lord, in you let our, let our work not be in vain. Use us as arrows in your hand to accomplish your purposes. And even if nothing of our efforts stand, Lord, you remain. Lord, may you be glorified in us today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.